0: Why do we eat the things we do? Habit? Comfort? Taste? Don Osborne discusses eating millet in Africa and other commodities like sugar and soybeans. It's on Tip of the Tongue. of the time, a podcast on the Nitty Grits Network, where we explore the intersection of food and drink and museums. This is Liz Williams. We're here today with Don Osborne. He's an independent scholar and consultant studying a diverse number of foods and geographic areas. In other words, he's living an interesting life in food and probably other things. Welcome, Don.
1: Hi, Liz. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So we got to know each other through a conversation about something that the Southern Food and Beverage Museum started or got a gift years ago. Susie Oaks, who donated to us uh, her life's work, which was really whatamieating.com, which was a dictionary that she personally put together having 65,000 or more entries, but she was dying and donated her work to us. And we renamed it Nitty Grits to make a distinction between what we did to it and how we changed it. And there was a legacy website of whatamieating.com that still is being maintained. And I think that's how you found us.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. I, I was looking up something and I forget off the hand what it was. And I came across your dictionary and then I looked into the history of it, which thank you for recapping that and clarifying it. Yeah, part of the reason is, is that I'm working on understanding some millets in, in particular, but uh, get more into that in a little bit. And part of the reason is that I've, I've done some lexicographical work in the past on, on language in Mali. So I, I guess I have a little bit of a bent even though I'm not a linguist formally trained, uh, I have a little bit of a bent looking uh, at and analyzing a uh, wordless glossary. Uh, so I just it seemed like to be a very interesting uh, enterprise, especially cross-cultural, especially when there's borrowing and uh, testing trying different dishes a lot of uh, names flipping out there. seems like a very useful sort of uh, reference to having to develop. So maybe it'll be a good opportunity to discuss that in detail on another occasion.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, so I see that you worked with Sydney Mintz, and you've worked with some really interesting, well-known people in food. How did that come about?
1: Well, yeah, uh, Sydney Mintz was a uh, uh, Sydney Mintz was a professor of mine of uh, anthropology when I was an undergrad at uh, Johns Hopkins many years ago and uh, he, he's obviously a distinguished uh, uh professor of anthropology has done work in food anthropology and focused a lot on Caribbean. uh later on in his uh uh career he was focusing on some commodities notably soy and was working with uh, Tan Qibong, uh, professor then at uh, Chinese University of Hong Kong and uh Christine Dubois was, uh uh, Johns Hopkins at one point, and um, they uh, had a panel on soybeans, and they had seen something I had uh, more or less casually, but some observations I had written regarding soybeans in West Africa, and uh, that's even a slightly long story, but, but basically what happened was I was invited to uh, write a paper and present on a panel, and the... Uh, Panel was at a conference. Uh, the Ch- Chinese Dietary uh, Association has periodically they like biannual, um, uh, you know, every two years conferences that happened to be in Chengdu, which was uh, the town of my then the hometown of my then wife. So it was a nice opportunity to, to uh, present on a panel about soybeans in West Africa and uh, reconnect with Professor Minz. and. I might just mention that the theme of that paper, since this is a, uh, a podcast, was the use of soybeans in two particular ways. One was for a locally made tofu or bean curd, uh, which all of a sudden, when I was in Niger, at the time all of this happened, I was, I was uh, on Peace Corps staff in Niger, uh, there were some volunteers that came to me and said there's tofu being sold, fried tofu being sold at local village markets where we are. And I said, you're kidding me. Stop pulling my leg. And no, for real. In I Niger. There in, in, Niger right? in Niger, right. Right, north of Nigeria. Well, <clears throat> there's a whole story to that. And uh, uh, other researchers have been looking at this too. But to make it quick, the uh, International Institute of Tropical Agriculture had uh, uh, an effort to um, vote use of soybeans for um, protein in the diets of poorer people. And somebody, uh, a scholar from uh, Japan, figured out how uh, they might just uh, adapt it to a, a, a niche in the local cuisine that was occupied by a locally made cultured uh, cheese called wagasi. Uh, and it caught on. and. Uh, woman to woman apparently it was passed on throughout uh Nigeria until it crossed the border Niger. so it's very interesting and, and right now I think at, uh, I haven't followed it in recent years but it's really uh become uh, fairly common in many parts of West Africa at least uh, it, it's a little bit different than the which was made in Asia but it's from soybeans basically it's basically the same sort of thing and that's eaten a little bit differently to match the local cuisines the other use of soybeans which was interesting. Was as a, a sometimes substitute for seeds of the African locust bean tree. Parenthetically, I work forestry in West Africa. And the, those uh, seeds are typically fermented uh, into a very pungent, uh, really smelly spice called Sumba or Dawa Dawa. Those, those are words that you might find in the Nidigritz dictionary, I, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. But uh, they, um, that uh, spice is very common in West Africa, especially in the Sahel um throughout and it's uh, it's well appreciated but the uh the good and the bad of it is the, the, the bad is that the tree seeds used for this are becoming a little rarer because uh the trees are dying and not being replanted that that much but the soybeans uh are a pretty good substitute and um also can be more quickly and require less uh, uh firewood to heat them up to the where you basically so there's a lot of different angles to it. This is uh, the interesting stories.
0: Yeah, that's the that's the fun of studying food. I think there's always all kinds of interchange and exchange of ideas and actual material products. So it's fun. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So um, yeah. So food, actually, to be honest, it, it's been always on the horizon or incidental to what I've been on or where I've been living. And I've had the good fortune to be in a number of places. I spent quite a bit of time in West Africa as, as uh, some of what I was saying applies, but also in uh, China, particularly Sichuan, and uh, in East Africa and Middle East. So um, that's you know, lots of stories from each and all of those places. One thing that we we talked about mentioned at the beginning about millets i don't know if that's appropriate that i go right just
0: jump around no problem
1: the uh part of the reason i was interested in millets at this point but it kind of was a culmination or a realization that 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 all these different incidental uh opportunities to try foods in diverse places uh and there's lots of other lots of other stories was that i have been eating different millets in different places for like 40 years. And it was first introduced to millets in West Africa, particularly uh, pearl millet and um, and sorghum, and then fonio. Although sometimes sorghum is not considered a millet, fonio is kind of a millet by its own name. Um, But uh, some interesting uh, local dishes made in various places, including one with uh, where the fonio in southern Togo, the fonio is toasted because you uh, toast it over. It, to de it, one way to do that is to, to heat it up, and the hulls sort of pop off, and then it's easy to to uh, to uh, thresh and, and to, um, not thresh, but basically de haul And uh, that toasted meal cooked with uh, uh, black-eyed peas uh, or cow peas and uh, with palm oil sauce is a traditional dish in the Akkoso area of southern Bogo. So you read, like I say, it's all kinds of little sprays. Um Anyway, with the uh, that experience, I came back to the U.S. and I was in a market and I saw millet in the uh, bulk bin. This was back before the the plastic bulk which we see these days with bulk food And I said, "Oh, that'd be nice to reconnect with millet." But it was an entirely different kind of millet also millet. I right? uh, <laughs> "Okay, different taste, different look." uh that that was a bit of a learning process when i uh buried and and uh, spent a good amount of time with chinese cuisine uh i was introduced to uh, the foxtail millet uh, and cheese and whatnot and of course there are um glutinous that uh, I sticky not you not gluten it's in the green but uh sticky uh versions of the uh, uh, millets also used in china and then in east africa i came across something called uh in uganda which is made from um finger millet it's a non-alcoholic oh they do have alcoholic versions alcohol versions also But the share i tried with uh, a malted non-alcoholic uh, beverage made with uh, finger millet and sort of range. And it's quite good. I mean, it's an adult taste with, with, with the sweetness, a natural
0: sweet. Did it, did it have any kind of fizz to it at all? Even just a minimal fizz?
1: like sourness, but no, it didn't have a fizz to it, as you would expect. Well, here on the topic of fizz, I might go back to uh, West Africa and say that there's a, a long traditions of, of bringing pearl millet into a, a low-alcohol beer that does have its fizz. And actually, that is usually consumed while it's still venting in the, in the, in the, cal- <laughs> in the calabash tradition. Uh, so, uh, although I don't drink uh, now, I, I was back in those days had a chance to sample that. Uh, so, um, yeah, there's, there's just uh, So in various different ways had, had encountered a lot of different millets. And then at one point, uh, about seven years ago, I, I, I strolled into a, a South Asian market. And is well stocked, and it had millets that I had encountered before, but hadn't seen anywhere else in the US. Uh-huh. So a light started to go off, and I started to get into all of this, uh, and uh, it is basically taken off from there. Then, what happened in 2018? Uh-huh. India began proposing an International Year of Millets, which I and I tracked that process, which ultimately led to the uh, year 2023. That's next year being uh, declared. Uh, International Year of Millet. I and I, I talking with some friends about and
0: who who has who has named it the uh, International Year of Millet.
1: Uh, that's coming out of I guess the the proposal by India, which has been co-signed by I don't know fifty or seventy countries. As typically the uh, UN General, General Assembly resolutions are, gather a lot of signers, but I believe that came out of the. Uh, Uh, of india but also it's part of the u.n
0: UN. yes it's It's
1: the u.n has international years so for instance 2013 was international year of quinoa and that had a huge effect on uh the market for quinoa globally Mm -hmm. so that's that's certainly a possibility here in this case with millets although in case of millets we're not talking about one we're talking about roughly about a dozen cultivated grains and then a bunch of others that are very local and, and
0: So what are you studying now?
1: Uh, well, I'm actually putting a lot of effort into this because, uh, I mean, there's-
0: Say this, always, you mean the year of the of millet?
1: The year of the millets. This okay. is because we're trying to gear up, some, we're using the banner uh, North American Millets Alliance. So that, uh, the, what I'm studying, some of it is very applied, simply how, how to uh, bring Uh, interested parties, sometimes the word stakeholder is used, uh, and uh, different activists and different companies and uh, associations together around making this year a way to publicize, uh, raise awareness of, and interest about millets.
0: How actively is millet grown in the U.S.?
1: There's two levels to talk about. It is actually grown, or especially, don't say they, there's a, a number of millets, probably about a half dozen that are grown mainly for forage uh, in various parts of the country. Uh, got uh, uh, finger millet, not finger, mill- or foxtail millet, uh, proso, uh, teff actually is a millet and it's grown uh, for tape, brown um, uh, top, uh, what uh, so-called Japanese millet um, and uh, a few others. That, and they're grown uh, various use cover crop, uh, catch crop, uh, or um, most often forage or hay and sometimes for grazing uh, for animal farming. Now, out of all those, uh, proso and teff are actively grown for grains for a number of just for me, humans to eat. Mm-hmm. So It's a little bit complicated, the, the answer, but what is interesting there uh, is that uh, farmers are familiar with millets, but not as grain crops. Uh, so you might have the potential to expand into grain crops because each of the millets has different, uh, different taste and nutritional profiles. Very interesting possibilities exist there. Uh, and then, so yeah, so millets, the history of millets in the US uh, or in North America generally. Uh, I might just mention that, that uh, before the arrival of Europeans, the uh, Native Americans in much of the continent uh, apparently grew, definitely ate, uh, cousins of proto and milk, Mel- ceteria and panicum species. This is, you, know, you have to remember that historically, corn, uh, maize was a major boom to the cultures of the region before the Europeans came. But it took a while to be developed, history, you know, in the ancient times, and then and then to uh, be promulgated. Throughout the so there's uh, evidence uh, of, of being grown, but that those are not actively at all, my awareness now. Uh, but millets you know, basically came with the European settlers, and and foxtail was so big, and I think foxtail millet around the turn of the twentieth century was so big that that was considered common millet. And sometimes the word "common millet" is, is used to describe proso now. So it's one of the examples of how language shifts and so on regarding, uh, food. but. Um,
0: and so you, is part is part of the goal to make millet as ubiquitous now as quinoa.
1: Yeah, I, I that's that's a simple way of putting it. But yes, uh, to, to to at least make those uh, more um, available or make them. More a part of people's food imagination and possibilities, a, a number of uh, basically only two millets are grown for uh, human consumption here, but quite a number are imported. I mentioned going into a uh, uh, South Asian or Indian market, um, so there's quite a lot coming. India, there's also uh, uh, millets coming from uh, uh, China and also from West Africa, for example. Fonio is considered. I mentioned that are uh, millets, and there's there's a few operations, notably. Uh, uh, chef Pierre Choms so you know which are importing uh, fonio so um the the imports of fonio uh, are significant so here's what the basic line for thinking is that the uh, millets are going to be grown increasingly in this region in North America and the US and our neighbors for various purposes and part of the reason for that is is they're adapted to drying conditions that farmers are encountering mm-hmm. throughout, throughout almost everywhere and um, at the same time people will be consuming more millets as food sources so uh, something specialized like uh, uh, well pearl millet is a major grain internationally but it's not grown here but it's important. so that might be an example mm-hmm. uh, of um, uh, how the imports will, will create the variety so we've got the dual uh, paths happening and it's, it's basically a good question to try to get people aware of what's happening and then to think about how to how to popularize them because you've got uh, uh, it's one thing to say something's healthy and good for the environment, but if it doesn't taste good, we don't know how to it's not going anywhere. And this is a big problem. So farmers are farming so for instance, it's gonna be great and there's efforts by uh, just to promote that. Those- uh, so if
0: you were going to cook Fonio or any other millet to try to help popularize it what would you say about the way it tastes and how would you cook it in order to make it appealing to the American market?
1: Yeah, I think um, the basic cooking of the grains is fairly simple. It's like rice or uh, quinoa, you know, you put it in a cooker. The uh, thing with grains, of course, is that they are the holders of taste of other things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're, They're the bulk of the diet and they have their own taste and texture. Uh, but largely, uh, it's the other stuff that makes it uh, makes it interesting. So I think uh, part of it is is just uh, maybe trying to work with um, people who can, I don't know chefs and others who can put it into a, a context of how this can fit in either uh, a familiar food or something else. I mean, you could, you can use them in baked goods, for instance. They can be substitutes for uh, other greens and baked goods. Uh, so you could actually talk about them cooked for meals, or you could have them baked for uh, various goodies that you'd eat at various times. So uh, well, there's actually a lot of uh, different angles on that, that, that uh, uh, trying to think about more systematically and then who would be able to promote those. But yeah, a lot of it boils down to stories uh, too. I mean, getting the taste and the examples of Ways to eat millets are one thing, but also stories that make them interesting in terms of, of how they're used in different cultures, how they uh, fit in uh, healthy diets, and so on. So, you can basically.
0: So, is- so I, one of the things that I think is a problem with millet or quinoa or amaranth or any of those kinds of teeny grains, these tiny grains, is that it really is something that you have to get used to if what you are used to is something like rice, which is a much bigger grain. And I think that I found that it makes it a little bit easier if you mix it with a different grain so that people get used to this tiny grain before you just give it to them without any introduction and using it as a a stuffing, say stuffing a vegetable with it. And then you can add uh, seasonings like onions and celery and other things chopped into it so that people get a different kind of mouthfeel. I think that that happens to be one of the the problems with introducing something new is that if it doesn't have an, an easy analog to something that people are already eating, it's hard to get them to change the way the food presents to them, and even if the taste is fine, it's not about taste. It's just this is different. Do I eat this with a spoon instead of a fork because it goes through the it goes through the tines of a fork, you know that kind of thing, and we're yeah. not prepared for how to deal with that.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, one of my colleagues in, in North American Mills Alliance, uh, Joni well Moore mentioned uh, mixing millets with rice, exactly as you're, as you're suggesting. I actually tried that at home here. It, yeah, that, that's one way. Another way maybe to, and certainly and be promoted, another uh, way is to frame it differently. So for instance, something small like foxtail millet, uh, I just did that and uh, uh, thinking of it as, as couscous, it presents pretty much the same size and so on. So basically you think about this as a millet couscous uh in fact you know you've got these kind of uh uh ways of eating uh foods that might involve something small there are many ways of eating greens that are small and, and some of those might include incorporating into oatmeal for instance and breakfast or porridges so you've got a, a number of, or soups so you have a number of options but you're, you're right the the, the, uh, the size issue is a little bit funny because they're so small um but uh they're, they're very, very healthy in terms of, of fiber, uh, minerals and vitamins and have the advantages of, of not uh, having a gluten or, and also having low glycemic index.
0: So one of the things that I think has been under, underused as a, um, as a way to introduce small grains of all sorts is to mix it with grits because grits produce enough glutinous material to, to sit together so that you can pick it up with a fork. But grits, of course, have all sorts of associations with the, the South that are negative, where people think, oh, that's a grit eater, you know, that kind of thing, where it's not something that's elegant, it's just ordinary food, it's not something that people necessarily want to eat. But if you mix something like millet with grits, then you can still eat it with a fork and put gravy on it. And so you can integrate it into food that you already know in in a way that is not necessarily to say, put this in your soup, and then you have this little stuff sitting in your soup. And what do you do with that? You know, this is, it makes it, I think, pretty easy. That's,
1: yeah, that's, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I would just, uh, since you're talking about rich, I actually, uh, your uh, listeners can't see this but it's, I've got a... Millet, uh, broken,
0: broken mi- millet. Broken yeah.
1: well, yeah. millet and grits, basically. And the reason I got that is that that's how you would uh, break it up to steam it as kooch-kooch or um, also to um, make a, a mm-hmm. certain kinds of porridge with it. But yeah, that that, that those could be uh, mixed. Up. Again, this is the millet, which is too big as it is and needs to be broken down to do something <laughs> else. Cook this against it.
0: But it releases it releases the starch better when it's broken. So, yeah. and I think that is a an element that needs to be considered. Yeah,
1: yeah. That that's another story. I don't know how much time we have left, but just talking about couscous and, and millets and so on, there's actually interesting historical examinations of the old or ancient couscous culture in West Africa that's based on ways of cooking phonio, steaming either that or especially broken millet
0: mm-hmm.
1: pearl millet and uh, sometimes s- sorghum such that it's been a suggestion that that may- might have predated uh, the wheat-based couscous of the Maghreb mm-hmm. so um that that's a little bit controversial but the two have been have have, have are both go back uh, a long way uh, but uh, yeah so there's different um Uh, interesting stories there. Actually, when I was in West Africa, part of what I'm I'm thinking about in terms of ways to eat it also, if you get into local cuisines, there's just a lot of ways of using pearl millet that I encountered, especially in Mali and in in Niger, uh, just uh, that are not on the radar of of Western uh, cooks and what have you. So it's it's, uh, various ways of uh, Making this the so called stiff porridge or the or the, the uh, lump of, of uh, cooked grain of flour that you can then tear off a piece and then dump the sauce, typically like okra or, or a leaf sauce. Um, but those um, sometimes can be served uh, ladled out in kind of a composite form with uh, the shea butter oil, which is heated. So in other words, you can take the same stuff and present it in different ways and it becomes almost a different dish. It's a different dish,
0: Well, Don, I wanna thank you so much and look forward to the year of millet next year.
1: Yeah, thank you, uh, Liz. It's been a pleasure to to ramble on about these different topics and and look forward to uh, talking more about this in other contexts. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to Tip of the Tongue, part of the Nitty Grits Network of the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans. Learn more and subscribe to this and other podcasts at southernfood.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Find us on Facebook on Nitty Grits Podcasts. I'm Liz Williams. Thanks for listening.